Hey, you're here with Montage Through Cinema uh, with your host, Arian Bepour. This time it's going to be a little different. Uh, we only have one guest, and it's a returning guest, Zach Crossway. How's it going, people? All right, um, so I have a few questions for Zach, and we're going to have a little bit of a discussion. So um, one of the things that was interesting to me was we were talking, we were talking about um, uh, film criticism, uh, like constructive criticism with peers in like classrooms or with friends and I don't know, wherever you would talk about their films they've created. And you brought up an interesting um, way of looking at it that I, I never really looked at it that way. Want to expand Oh, yeah, sure I can. I mean, it's very important to know that the setting that we're in is very unique and also bizarre because usually when someone makes a film and you go see it, you don't have the filmmaker present and you don't get to tell them what you actually thought about it face to face. But being in film school and specifically at Columbia College of Chicago, in how the film production classes are organized, you're continually being confronted with people's work and then the actual person and, ha and you're having to tell them what you thought about it. So the conversation we had um, kind of had to do with the problems of that at Columbia and some of the problems I see with that is having to do with the inherent need to criticize a film or the inherent need to compliment a film that a lot of people at Columbia have and my whole point is that I just don't see it as being uh, as constructive as it could be just because you shouldn't look at a film and say oh that's good or bad for these reasons or you succeeded or failed for these reasons but you should be telling the filmmaker how you actually experience the work because that's the aspect that they couldn't actually know until someone tells them that like when I was watching the film at minute two I was kind of zoning out mm -hmm. that's very productive for a filmmaker to hear because they just don't know the exact details of let's say the chronology of someone watching one of their films and to say that like you know they did or did did or did not do something well is kind of it's just poorly worded and it's very vague, I would say. That's kind of what we talked about. So what's really interesting to me is that, um, I mean, I do a mixture of that currently. And um, after that, I, was, I, I actually had an, uh, a chance to criticize uh, for my, my scene study class. And it's actually very uh, kind of difficult. Um, more so because in that class, you know the intent because um, we, we show each other our pre-production packages, we talk about themes. The teacher, you know, you know he talks about the theme to the, um, the students and they have to, you know, give their thoughts on it. So you kind of know a little bit of what's going on in their head. But it was very difficult and it was kind of interesting because I thought, oh, you know, like maybe I'm, I'm going to try this out and it, it was, you know, harder than I thought. Um, one one thing though, uh, which we also discussed, um, we're kind of going backstepping through a conversation where we had, but um, there's there's clearly students in um, Columbia uh, and probably other colleges too. I, I mean, it's easy to, to see mm -hmm. that they really idolize um, directors like Wes Anderson, Edgar Wright, Quentin Tarantino. And those directors really doubled down on their um, style. Mm. So one thing, one time, like, you know, we, we, we talked about, let's, let's go back down through it. What about when, when a, uh, a student is clearly trying to copy that? How do you criticize that? How would you go about that? Would you tell them, like, oh, just, like, 
don't like stop what you're doing. Be original, mm-hmm. or would you be like you're not? I can see that you're trying to be Wes Anderson, and you're not being Wes Anderson. Well, a lot of that has to do with organizing how someone should be making a, a piece of art versus if they're trying to, like you're talking about your scene study class, if they're trying to convey a meaning or a purpose. And me as a filmmaker, and I think the films that I see as being some of the great works, and I think universally the great works of cinema, not just like really avant-garde stuff, but like, you know, we have 2001 Space Odyssey is right here. I wouldn't say Stanley Kubrick had like a meaning he was going for or something, or I don't think he had like a goal that he wanted to have people get out of it, right? Aside from the entire experience, because for a film to be two hours and 40 minutes, for instance, or even a short film, it's very hard to say that you want an organization of words to arise in people's heads that matches like what you want, you know? Uh-huh. Is this gonna... Okay. Um... Yeah, so I was talking about 2001. Yeah. Um, and just meaning and all that kind of stuff. Because I think part of the central problem is like you're talking about Tarantino and Edgar Wright and those people, and then film students, is that it's an, in, it's an inadequate way to approach understanding how filmmakers are going about making their work. Like I'm saying, I don't think any filmmaker goes about, and even if they say it, I don't believe them, that they're making it to convey like a message or something. Because if you want to tell someone something, you just tell them. You don't just construct this elaborate film in which you know there are ups and downs and all that kind of things and also there are divisive moments it's not like as spielberg would say he's trying to like orchestrate the audience and get them to react at certain points and i mean sure there's a purpose for that there's there's a place for that kind of cinema but i'd also argue attempting to do that is a bit uh futile and it's not really possible to actually guide every single audience member at the same moment through the same kind of event you can really just present them something to react to and it doesn't appear to me that a film student, and specifically Columbia film students, actually understand that their work cannot give me the words that they want, you know? And it's also a matter of language and speaking. Like, I would say I'm a better speaker than most people, and I would have more words or more complex variations of uh, patterns of sentences than most people would. And I could tell someone that made a bad film what I thought about it as like a lie also I could like say oh it's like this and I could like go above them and you hear that too when filmmakers say oh I like didn't think that I didn't think you'd get that out of it well it's because you can't just anticipate what your viewers will be able to bring to it as far as the uh, as far as the words they have right and how they're able to phrase out what they think about a work you know so the problem does become what you actually want out of an audience in that case and I want something more abstract, and it's not it's not abstract as in it's it's unclear, but it's it's more specific to like an emotional response or um, it's harder for people like for my films, I would like to think that people are having a tougher time to bring words to it just because I'm not using the same language of cinema that had been used in which we've all been kind of conditioned on how to speak on that right like a close up means this and a wide shot means this and a low angle means this and a high angle means that so I guess to correct some of this has to go back to correcting what people are in film school for. And I'm of the position that you shouldn't be making, like, you know, a movie that gets certain laughs at certain moments and stuff. And that's also, I would say, an extreme position. So you can still do that. But as far as what you, the original question you asked, and originality, you should still be pushing people to find what they actually 
sincerely feel is funny, not like what they're trying to replicate to get a sense of satisfaction that they succeeded, but what is actually true to themselves that, and idiosyncratic, that's the right word, what is actually coming from themselves that is very personal and very nuanced that potentially could get a laugh or it could get a reaction from an audience. And you shouldn't ever be taking from other filmmakers um, in, the, in the sense that you're trying to succeed, but it's more like you're trying to express something or you're trying to portray yourself, I would say. Even the movies that are trying to convey yeah. a meaning, there still is that level of a person and themselves. Yeah. And there's that inherent truth to the filmmaker pursuing, even if they're trying to convince an audience of one thing, which I also don't think is the best way to make films, um, that that would be from themselves. And I don't think most filmmakers are, especially Columbia people, they don't look at it like that. They don't, they're not looking at it from this artistic sensibility. Well, uh, so talking about Columbia and how I, I think you're like structured in films, originally it's like you have to have like a theme, you have to develop a theme, either write it down, it's like you're, you know, it's, it's on the top of your document, whatever package that you're making, production, production package you're making. And then you have to, it, it's kind of, um, to me, it's the same thing as like going from shooting a wide in a, two mediums on a um, camera setup and then learning that that's bullshit and you don't have to do that. But they teach you that way. And, and talking about themes in that way, I think that um, for me personally, I've been going away from themes. I, I do agree with you. Themes kind of, to me, it's a little different though. I think themes naturally develop. I think they naturally develop, and I think they kind of come from your unconscious mind of the writer and, or the director. And I think that one, one thing about what you're saying about the futility of it is that with, with themes, um, you might think, oh, this right here represents, um, I don't know, uh, the blood of people that died for um, worthless reasons, like for petty crimes, for robbery, right? This is the representative of this. But then maybe in the film, just the way, like saying from, from uh, pre-production to production, you just might have not shot it the way you thought you did, and it's going to come out completely different. And I think, um, so right now what I try to do um, as I'm developing as a filmmaker is I focus on uh, kind of like Spielberg, the, the characters and then the emotion. And as long as I, which I haven't before, I don't think my films are so emotional at all. Um, I think that you, you just try to get a character who's real and who's, mm, doesn't have to be relatable. I think the more, I think by being real and being either flawed or being, you know, perfect to a too far extent, like there's, there's things that you can catch in your, your um, that they, they're similar to your real life. Mm -hmm. Right, and then you can. That's just relatable by itself. Actually, there are some films where you, I don't know, like a an action movie might kind of be more entertaining if you have a relatable protagonist. But um, and then I try to pick out emotional moments that I I kind of will think will be emotional to me, and then I try to really hit those marks and hit those small beats. And I try never to. And, and what I mean. Uh, and I mean that in the macro, but then in the micro, what I mean is that um, there's films I'll watch and they kind of betray themselves. So I'll, I'll watch a film that in the film, um, a character is um, 
lying about something. I'm lying that I'm uh, I work at a hot dog stand. Hey, I work at a hot dog stand. And then the other character um, doesn't it doesn't believe them really too much. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, "By the way, um, you're not a hot dog stand uh, worker because your your intellect of your your knowledge of hot dogs is not sufficient, okay. yeah. right?" And in some movies, I notice that it's more like it's leading to the reveal of the lie that the character B knows that the character A was lying about it, rather than you really feeling that character A is lying, and then he he thinks that he's getting away with it, and then oh maybe maybe the character B knows. They give up on easy things. Yeah, they give up on small things that could be valuable. Um, they give up on small moments. Like uh, in my film, I have a moment where a character is looking for pants, and the thing is, I I was having a whole uh, what is it? Um, I was having a huge issue in my head because I was like, how do I have my actor look for pants if he knows or if the pants are always going to be under the uh, a bag on the desk chair? They're not going to be in the ground. They're not going to be under the bed. They're not going to be in his drawers. Um, they're going to be under this um, bag. It was like, how do I make this moment genuine? Um, and I, I don't think I really ever got there, but I gave it the focus. I didn't, I didn't let it, you know, mm-hmm. slip away. And um, so what I did was I put napkins, little crumpled up napkins, in piles of clothes here and there. And he was supposed to find three of those napkins. So at least he was actually genuinely looking for, for something, mm-hmm. something there. Um, yeah, I definitely think what you're bringing up has to do with also how people look at people, which... I mean, I think film school wants to teach you that there's this very logical and there's this very um, practical approach to how everyone looks at the world and like, okay, if a person is going to leave the room, they have to have a reason. But it's it's hard for me to believe that people are deeply logical, especially in all the action that pervades them. And like, it doesn't it doesn't appear to me that like if you leave the room, that that's motivated by you going to do something in general. Because I think human beings are even more. Uh, complicated than that and I think that's one of the things that's very deeply unsatisfying about um, about films that are ambiguous or ambivalent that they they seem to contend oh shit sorry uh, they seem to uh, essentially pitch that th- that people are conflicted and that like we're talking about with emotion you know that there are these things that are guiding us that aren't that isn't logical and I you just said like oh I don't know if my films have emotion but I'd say that that's within all of us, within, like, a viewing. And emotion is in, it's embodied, you know? Like, if you're sitting in a theater and you have to, like, sit there or you have to sit through a student's work, you are having, like, a physical and, I'll say, emotional response to wanting to leave, you know, Mm -hmm. or wanting to get through the film that doesn't have to do with, like, crying or getting angry. And that's maybe the further and also more more tangible idea of what we consider to be emotion. But I, I see emotion in the process of viewing a film as even more like I said, nuance, and it's also not as predictable as, as film school wants to teach you. They want to teach you that, okay, there's step-by-step, you have to build your film up step-by-step on the basis of logic, and that's just not how, especially from an emotional standpoint and from an artistic standpoint, that's not how art is made. You don't just logically make a work of art. You kind of release it from an emotional place almost. Like It's, it's closer to what I would say uh, it is, even though if you want to make your film that's more logical, uh, you can try that, but there still has to be these moments that are um, inexplicable. You know, like you're talking about finding pants. Like there could just be 
that morning when you wake up and you're really flabbergasted and you just don't know why, but you can't find something that you always know where it is, you know? Like, mm -hmm. I had a key in my place last year at 545, um, and I thought it was, like, gone, you know, for a long time, and I, like, just didn't have a key for months. And then I just found it on, like, my windowsill as if it was, like, not there the whole time, which I don't think it was there. I, like, I'm really... <laughs> no, I'm, like, very... I feel like that was, like, a glitch of some sort or some kind of, like divine intervention or something because there's no way i like looked on the windowsill for months i was like looking for my key it was never around and then it just appeared after like four months and that's something that happens in our lives that we want to just discount and we want to just forget about it but that's that happens and it's really troubling but it's also just troubling how how inconsistent we all are as people well, you're making me think of magnolia and that yeah, yeah, yeah. Scene a lot yeah and that's i mean i think that's a great scene and yeah i think you're you're a fan of paul thomas anderson too um and I, I, re I really like that kind of stuff. I, I like, um, that's one thing I actually liked about, um, like, Tarantino, uh, Pulp Fiction, at least, is, mm -hmm. like, like, it's really crazy how, at one point, though, um, Marcellus Wallace and then, uh, who's the guy, the other guy, the Butch, Butch and Marcellus Wallace are, like, chasing after each other, or Butch is chasing after Marcellus Wallace, and they go into a, a pawn shop, and then the, the, you know, the whole gimp thing happens. But, like... That is just like that is an equivalent. It's a radical equivalent to like in Manchester by the Sea when the climax of that film, it, or you know, you can argue with me, but the climax of that film is when he he just butts into his um, pregnant or his 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 um, ex-wife who has you know a, a child in a uh, in a roller, mm. and that's the climax of the film. He, just, he bumped into his ex-wife, and, yeah. the, and their children are dead. Yeah, and and, and like. like and that's what makes it so much more real, and it makes that all those moments seem so much more um, genuine. But but uh, to talk to you about nuance, so one thing I the way I see nuance is um, actually right now currently like like balancing um, kind of genres and the radical maybe to you like more blatant emotions I guess the you know the laughing the crying um, so like I'll watch a movie like. Um, uh, Killing Your Sacred Deer, and I think it's very nuanced because it's mixing dark humor with drama, with tragedy, with you know horror elements, and then, but that's more like a genre thing. I guess I'm saying nuance in general, but nuance with emotions. I think it's like Manchester by the Sea because in that film, you're laughing, you're feeling shitty, you're feeling like all these different emotions, which makes me feel like I did experience that guy's turmoil in those. Um, mm. Three four months, whereas I don't I don't know. Give me a film that you think is very nuanced that I might know. Um, you can say Cachet, like Michael Haneke. Okay, that's an incredibly nuanced. I mean, br you bringing up genre is another great conversation because it is an incredibly, um, you know, like we we watched a lab Diaz from yesterday, and he even talks about genre that you that you use the genres as like kind of like guides, and you use them as something to bounce off. Some of the more radical ideas and emotions you're so feeling. So he, he wants to. Use yeah, yeah. Art. So he's okay. he like works. So how he says season of the devil came about is he was writing a noir, and then it just became a musical because he just kept writing songs and he was like, okay, I'm making a musical. So um, <clears throat> season of the witch, season of the devil, season of the devil. Sorry, you, can you give like a paragraph description? Uh, okay, so season of the devil is a four-hour Filipino musical. <laughs> That uh, anti-musical musical. Yeah, uh, it's all acapella. There's no music. It's just people singing about you know bearing the weight of their souls and all this kind of really 
sad stuff and people dying and it's under it's set in 1979 when the Philippines was in, a, in an incredible in an, in an incredible crisis under martial law and there were civilian militias going around essentially taking power into their own to, into their own hands torturing and murdering people and the film has everything to do with what it means to be within a totalitarian system or to be in a in a country when it, the government has totally broken down and people are taking power into their own hands and in a musical sense and this is what he talks about in interviews how it is this re repetition of singing you know la 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 like that's in the movie like there's a lot of repetition that's really brutal to sit through because it is brutal to be in a country like that at that time because everybody is telling you what the what the certain answer is over and over again so it really is a film that uses the genre of musical to reveal what it's like to be entrapped in a society that's not allowing for any type of social mobility and also psychological mobility you can't really move away from not believing the dictator like the dictator knows everything and the reason he made the film is because he thinks that the Philippines are getting bad again. He says that Duterte, Duterte, I don't know how to pronounce his name, that he's a horrible guy and like that country is getting really scary. Like the the people are starting to like in unison be like, oh, he's great. You know, Marcos was great. You know, and he's very frightened about it. So if we're talking about genre and emotion, yeah. it is a guiding tool. It is a tool to give people something very strong that they know how to bank on. Like when we're watching the film, it's kind of exhausting because it's four hours, so you like want them to stop singing, but at the same time, it is almost comfortable that you know they're always going to be singing. Like it's something that you know you signed up for, and you know of all the films that you've seen that, in, that are musicals, uh, so you kind of know how it's going to be structured. Even if he subverts it, you can go back somewhere. It's not just like you can't have any sort of sense of structure. Is, is he subverting it by making it four hours, or is he subverting it by the act, the whatever act system he has, five acts, three acts? Yeah, I mean, in a narrative sense, he's certainly uh, subverting it just because his, his films are not narratively uh, possessed. They're not, they're not motivated by the narrative turns as strictly as other films, and strictly as in... I guess it has to do with duration, right? And it has to do with, like, shot length and that kind of thing. That he just doesn't think that... He doesn't like the films that are just very quick and, like, really quick cuts and, like, piece together this narrative. And, like, it's about efficiency. And in the West, like we're talking about with logic, uh, I think people are, are almost forgetting that films aren't really... Like, at a deep emotional level, films are not about following a pattern that you understand. And can you do that or not? Because every film can do that. Like, a movie doesn't exist unless it does do that right which is a really hard idea to push because then you can say oh well someone made a film and like it wasn't using the narrative structure that i've ever seen but you also have the narrative structure that you've always seen like as a as a part of your memory mm -hmm. so what is subverse subversive is the fact that he's embracing how limited we are by our bodies and our memories uh within these very long durations within these very long shots and very long films so it's making you really clearly in pain, like you're physically having a difficult time sitting through the whole thing. And, you know, there's some kind of comfort that it's like a musical and like you, they're always going to be singing and it's also brutal, but it's not as if, um, it's not like torture. It's not like as bad as what you actually see on the screen, which is kind of what's funny is you would think that watching a four-hour musical is like the worst thing ever, but yeah. it's not nearly as bad as what the characters are going through. And 
He said that before about some of his films. There's a film called A Lullaby to the Sorrowful Mystery. And he said, how are you supposed to track 100 years of history in a two-hour film? You can't do it. You try, I tried in an eight-hour film, and it's, it's a good try. So he has you know? an eight-hour film, too. Yeah, no, he's made a ton of films that are very, very long. And so that's exactly it. Wow. That, like, you, can't just, you can't just expect that the structure will work. You know, it's still an attempt at, like we're talking about with emotion, like getting to people's emotion and getting to people's bodies. And so, I think that's so taken it, for granted in the West. That's taken for granted in yeah. film schools that, like, you can just organize a structure and get people. But, no, you really have to, like, get them. So in Season of the Devil, if you see these incredible musical torture rape sequences that are, like, yeah. something you've never seen, you're going to be feeling all kinds of stuff you never thought you would be because of where it is within the film and where it is within the experience and how it's shot and how it's placed and it's so totally unique as a result of when it occurs and also how it occurs that it is that that's the attempt that that's an incredibly strong attempt at shaking an audience into being like this is horror and this happens in the world and people mm -hmm. don't know that and that's kind of what the film emotionally does to you. So you think that um, Season of the Devil would be like, it's more horrific than like Schindler's List or... Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. Um, one thing one thing um, I think is interesting, it's kind of like throwing pacing out the window. Like mm -hmm. each song, it seems like there, it seems like there's like, instead of, uh, I don't know what's a normal number for choruses, like four or three, three choruses in a song maybe. It seems like they do the chorus like eight times, maybe ten times yeah, each, each song. Yeah, and even even when it's like, um, it, it seems like they lose um, the verses actually too. I, I think though the one yeah their voices start cracking and like they have a tough time keeping up singing. A there's a song Al Alino Maria, Alina Maria. Yeah, Lorraine. I think it's like Lorena, Lorena Maria or something. Um, and in that song, you know, it's it's about a grieving mother who lost her child and he's dead. And um, I think it has verses in the the first three or four times she sings a chorus between each chorus is a verse. And then I think at the end it's just her repeating the chorus over and over again. And that really got to me, actually. That really um, affected me. And, you know, uh, Cards on the Table, I fell asleep for, like, probably an hour and a half yeah. of the film. It's my first uh, Lav Diaz film. I'm, I'm it's, a it's a really rough one to, to watch. The first That's, like, a tough Lav Diaz film to see for the first time because... He's emotionally, like I'm talking about with uh, Duterte, uh, Duterte, I'm trying to say the name right, he really is very scared about the situation, you know, and like yeah. that film is very angry and, and sad and, yeah. and terrified, and like that's, a terrified Lav Diaz film is really difficult and to And he also said through. the motherfuckers thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that it was made to, to show where motherfuckers like Donald Trump come from, yeah. which is, you know, you can see it in the film, it's like there, there's a character that's uh, playing... It's a guy named Narciso, and this is like, a, I'm sure, a very infamous Filipino. I don't think he's infamous within Filipino culture, but he's a bad man as far as Lav Diaz is concerned within the 1970s of rounding up these... these and he's a real character or a fake? Yeah, character? these are all like, well... well they're all, all based on... All the people are based off of real people. The, the, the dictator Narciso character, or the, the I think he's like a head general, I would guess, um, during this period... Uh, he has two faces in Season of the Devil. One is like in the back, and that's very perplexing. It's difficult to understand that. But there's a scene when he comes in and just starts screaming, and like it's not even translated. And I think that's part of the idea that he's just 
screaming like gibberish, but he's also kind. You can kind of make out that he's like going like he's kind of singing. He's kind of pointing, calling attention to the fact that people are that the movie is a bunch of singing. And then he just leaves, and someone goes, "Oh, you did you hear his beautiful words? You know, and he sings it like, did yeah. can you hear his beautiful words? And so that has to do with how in in times of peril when countries are really on the brink of despair that there can be these really terrifying figures that don't really say very much and they just they go they lead with their with their emotions and they lead with their with their anger and people look at that and they say I'm also angry so of course his words are beautiful even if they're like you know not very good words I mean obviously not obviously I mean Trump is kind of an example that we don't need to have a whole conversation about Trump but no, uh, I don't. uh <clears throat> He's kind of an example because, no, he's not very well-spoken, especially compared to almost all the presidential <laughs> candidates that, that have run, you know. Uh, but there's, a, there's an anger that appeals to the, pers- the modern person more than Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton didn't seem to have any emotion on the other side. And at yeah. least Trump was angry about something. And people said, yes, I'm angry too. And the people that defend him do really respect what he says. But it is because of the times that we're in. And again, you cannot compare Donald Trump to Duterte because Duterte is like killing drug dealers and he's like rounding people up and executing them. Like it's it's a really scary situation in the Philippines and it's not yeah. nearly as comfortable as being in a Western society when we're just complaining about, about a guy yeah. saying stupid stuff because our society is so built upon very strong foundations at like each level that it doesn't just crumble. But the Philippines, it's... It's rougher. That that country yeah. has not been built up in the sense that the United States has, and that's obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's too bad because they can go through these radical shifts of seasons, right? The devil will creep in for a season, and then you kind of have to wait for it to go away until people will realize, well, listen, life is just hard. Like, you can have hardship in your life, and you don't need to blame the government or society. And that's brutal. It's a brutal fact of life that if I, like, trip and skin my knee that, like, you know— I can't blame anybody. Well, either I, I don't even know if I could blame myself if there's like ice on the ground. But I, I certainly can't, can't blame the government, you know. And I, I can't blame the government for so many different things. And that's what an angry, tyrannical person does: is they say, "Listen, all your problems I can solve." And that's a far right idea: is the guy who's at the head of the state saying, "I can solve everything." And the film is about that: like people finding certainty when there's an incredible amount within our lives that we have to do on our own and we can't just say oh well you know the world is bad because of the president and it's like that's not true like your life is not bad because of donald trump your life is just hard in general and it's always going to be hard and there's only a reasonable amount of things that a government can do to make your heart your 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 life less difficult you know and it's only until recently that our lives especially in the west have been as comfortable and as great as they are on average and i'd say great economically um, and as far as how much certainty we, we actually do have because of the foundations that have built up over hundreds of years and the, the doctrine that we've kind of taken for granted in this day and age. Um, but, yeah, we don't need to keep talking about Trump, but it's certainly uh, – stuff about certainty certainly has to do with uh, – <laughs> certainty certainly. It certainly has to do with uh, film school, you know, that people think that you can just – you can just go through the steps and then your movie is a success, and if you don't, it's a failure. And that's kind of what ruins creativity and expression within filmmaking is thinking that there's very obvious ways to go about making films that everybody has to abide by. But no, everybody is a different person. And uh, we watched a film, we showed a film at the art house called Waking Life. And there's a line in that when someone comes up to the lead character and he says, as the pattern begins to evolve, 
uh, it'll take more and more nuanced efforts to decipher it or something like that. And it's very true for the modern person and in the continually in history, the individual person will have to confront more and more complicated problems at a more and more nuanced level in order to solve them. And that's a very difficult idea to understand about the progression of human beings and human culture and the human individual. But that's certainly true. I mean, it's certainly hard to believe that, well, it's hard to discount that within your own life, within each of our lives, that they're only becoming more and more complicated and that the answers to these complicated situations are just more and more nuanced and personal answers, right? It's mm -hmm. not like if you tell me how to do something, I just like listen and go, oh, okay, and then it just works. That's not how it works. I have to find out answers to questions that are unimaginable. And yeah. they're, not, they're also universal, but there's so many things in our lives that are incredibly difficult and personal to where we are and when that you can't even believe well, that you're being confronted That makes me think of um, Phantom Thread. Mm -hmm. So um, I would like I would like to have my friends on that we had this discussion, but we talked about Phantom Thread and um, actually I had a I had a my thinking of that movie, my take of that movie was that it was um, a positive relationship. It was just like, it was a, about a couple that just found a way to make their relationship work. Yeah, for both of them, and I, of course, like she's poisoning him, and the ending's ambiguous to whether spoilers for fan thread. Um, the ending's ambiguous whether she continues with him or he dies. So, um, but I, I do think that that's what is one thing that kind of drives me towards um, maybe more European films, but mm. but I don't know about the f slow cinema films mm. because they're not so thematic. But um, just the in America, how straightforward each theme is, it's just yeah. unsatisfying. Yeah, it's too literal. And like you bring up Phantom Thread, and that's you know a, a beautiful film, beautiful work of art, uh, incredible film. And what I've talked when I've talked about that film to people, and when you hear people talk about it, there's a great interview in Vicky Creeps, you know, the lead actress. She was mm -hmm. talking to someone. And he gets, and she gets asked, uh, yeah, you know, this is like a power struggle. What do you think about that? And she kind of flips out. She goes, power struggle, power struggle. I hear this word so often in America. Like, I don't hear this anywhere else. I've never even heard about a power struggle before, a power struggle. She was just so annoyed because in a relationship, it's not a power struggle. It's not a power dynamic. I think people don't understand, and I'll, I'll make this comparison because I think this is a good one, that it's like in science, right? Everything is gravity, that there are planets that have gravity and we have gravity. And you're told... As an object within space, you have gravity. Just because me and you are smaller than planets, though, does not mean we don't have it. It just means we have less levels. So in a system of power, how it, power is oriented is off of the size. So if I am talking to 10 people and they're all listening to me, then that's more power than if I'm just talking to you one-on-one. -on -one. So at the level of a, of a personal romantic relationship, that is the least based on power you could possibly have. And I think that the negotiation of living your life has nothing to do with power as far as us talking. Mm -hmm. And sure, you can bring in that I'm a, I'm a great fashion designer or something and that, that holds it over you, but that's just not really true as far as exactly what the negotiation is. And within the, the, the relationship of Phantom Threat, it's not like he's grabbing power and she's grabbing power. Yeah. It's more like they're navigating it together and they're making these compromises that aren't off of winning and losing. It's as a result of them 
going at each other. And it's not like one is trying to gain something and they're making a move, right? You could say that's kind of what there will be blood. What happens in there will be blood is they are characters that are trying to get what they want in a political and economic sense. Mm-hmm. Phantom Thread has nothing to do with that, though, because neither Vicky Creeps or Daniel Day-Lewis, their characters, are actually trying to get economic or political uh, status because of the other. They're trying to get romantic positioning. And romantic positioning is not power-related, I would say. I mean, you could say it is because every there is power everywhere, but it's like the least related to power you could possibly have in the entire human world when it's a, a couple in a relationship because that's just two people trying to figure each other out. I think with relationships, it's like kind of the same idea. There's a movie called Brad Status with uh, Ben Stiller, mm. and it's about um, Ben Stiller. He takes his son to um, Boston to look at like four colleges or three colleges. And the whole time the film is it's got voiceovers and... Basically, it's about how this um, this white four-year-old dad who's successful, has a two-floor beautiful suburban house. He's not um, satisfied enough, and he's got friends. One of them's a film director. One of them's got his own law firm. One of them's a, a political um, celebrity. I forgot exactly what he was. Um, and he's like, I'm not satisfied enough. And that film, to me, I mean, it's about making these problems we have. We're in a society where we don't, I mean... Clearly, like the, we're not in the Philippines, where we have to, it's not life and death. So we make small problems bigger. Yeah. I, I, this is a huge issue for me, at least. I, I make small things way bigger in my head, and then thinking about movies like that. But in a relationship, a relationship, it's so emphasized, because everything, every type of media, you can't watch a Wes Anderson, I, I would see Isle of Dogs yesterday after the Los Dios movie. Uh, he can't leave a movie alone without putting like three love interests in it. Mm-hmm. It has to be, and it makes and it doesn't. I don't think it helps the story. If you're thinking about a conventional story, it doesn't help a conventional story to have three throwaway characters that don't add anything to it. At least two throwaway characters, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, so we're so involved in like this idea of romanticizing, you know, like love and romanticizing um, a girl or a guy two younger girls and younger guys and as you get into them you kind of realize oh man like this is a big deal that you're doing this this is a big deal that you're doing this and it's kind of like explosions in your head and it happens with anything it can happen with oh um this guy butt in front of me in line and at the moment it's the biggest thing in your head but in the terms if you zoom out in your life and you can't you can't do that because you're human right and um, that actually reminds me of a film that you should watch. Um, it's called... God, fuck. What is it called again? Um, yeah. Well... I almost have it. I was on the tip of my tongue. But the, the thing... Um, so I, I made a movie called The Aardvark. And my, my favorite thing about The Aardvark... And actually there's a movie called uh, Love, Simon, too, which... Let's trivialize that. I, I actually do think that Love, Simon is a pretty good movie, and I've been told that I'm crazy for thinking that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I like films that are character-based, and all it is is a character, you know... Ex- I remember what it's called. ...exaggerates a small issue in their life <clears throat> and makes it so much more bigger in their heads. Right. And all the conflict, the only thing that can resolve the conflict is literally, like, it's almost as small for the main character to walk, like, ten feet. That's how. That's all they have to do, and they don't do it for the whole course of film. It's and it's it's showing the audience how this is an issue for this character, and making them actually believe in it. Mm-hmm. And then whether that character gets through that, like Shane, 
Shame yeah. is the same thing. Shame is a, a very... The Steve McQueen, Michael Fassbender film. Yeah. yeah. Very small problem. I mean, it's not a very small problem. He has a sex addiction or a porn addiction. But, I mean, in, this, in the scale of, like, uh, what is it? Um, even in the scale of Isle of Dogs, it's not about an island of dogs that, you know, they're in the house of, that's a bad political thing. It's, yeah. it's a small thing. It's a, one guy in a, in a porn addiction. But anyway, what's the movie yet? It's called Eccentricities of a Blonde-Haired Girl. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's by a man named Manuel de Oliveira. And Oliveira uh, died at the age of 108, still making films. So he directed Eccentricities of a Blonde-Haired Girl at the age of, of like 104, 105, wow. back in 2009, 2010. So the film, it starts on a train, and it's a man talking to a woman about an incident in his life, right? And it's only an hour long. Yeah. It's like an hour long, and you're thinking to yourself, how does a 105-year-old make this hour-long film? Like, if he's the master, why wouldn't he make, like, a 10-hour film? But no, it's an hour long because it is kind of what you're talking about. Of it, it, And that's, like, the feeling that you get from seeing the film, that it's a, a, a very old and wise man seeing a time in his life that was very strenuous. And the narrative is that there's a man, like I said, he's talking to a woman on a train, and he's describing to her... Um, he's describing to her that he saw this blonde-haired girl across the way, and he thought she was beautiful. He wanted to marry her. He asked her to marry. Then his uncle says, no, you can't get married. And he's thrown out on the street, like, in a second, because his uncle is like, no. And I'm not going to spoil it, but part of the film has to do with, um, again, that ambiguity of what do you do when you're out of work and you can't work, but you're, like, in love with this woman, and you're not in love with her. Like, he didn't meet her. It's yeah, like, and he ends up meeting. Yeah, it's infatuation. It's it's the fact that she has a fan and she's across the <laughs> way. And it's a very beautiful film because it is very romantic in that sense that you can pursue the blonde-haired girl. And what kind of happens is that he has to go and make money anyway, so he ends up having a harsher, more difficult time in his life trying to make money so that he can marry her. And it's a brutal film because it's kind of... You're kind of left, I'm not going to, again, I'm not going to spoil it, but you're kind of left with the, almost the, the failure of that initial pursuit, and the failure of it because here, here we are, and I'll, I'll say at least that the film ends on the train, because it's like a man talking to a woman on, on a train, and that's where it starts and ends, uh, and he tells what is the narrative of the film on the train. So you end on the train as if he finishes the story, um, and it's like him looking back at it, and he's still about the same age, but... As Oliveira at like 105, that clearly is like a story from like his life about him not really knowing what's going to happen and how he's going to go about navigating, you know, the romantic pursuit of, of being with this blonde-haired girl mm -hmm. or very practically making a living and working for his uncle. And in retrospect, it's almost implied that like you can't, you should, not like you should, but if you listen to your uncle, it's not like he's this tyrannical person. He also has his very wise position of no you can't get married and maybe it's because he's skeptical about the girl he's skeptical about what she actually is and who she actually is and so it's very dissatisfying as a as a younger person to hear that to hear from an older person that oh well i'm not going to let you get married and they're not going to give you their reason they're just going to say i know what's best right yeah. when you're thinking fuck that i want to like have a really beautiful glorious life but maybe they've gone through that themselves. Maybe they know that if you go after the blonde-haired girl, you're going to end up on the street and you're going to be having a really rough time. But there's no way to tell you that. You kind of have to go through it. And it's only the wisdom of an older person that has headstrong gone against their elders uh, and failed and also gone through the brutality of that 
to understand that there is this other side of like this removed okay maybe i shouldn't try and go into these romantic endeavors but it's also part of life that you have to try at some point to like jump into something that's not realistic also i would say and that's like why it's called romantic you know romance like it is very beautiful as an idea to pursue like this ideal gorgeous woman an ideal of a situation and it, it there's not like a goal it's more like oh I'll marry you and i'll love you forever right but you can't love anyone forever but it's still something that we all strive for it's just about the dosages that um like i said does become dangerous you know if you're going to start saying oh well you know it's po- it's a political reason there's a political reasons that i didn't like get with the girl it's like no it's because life is hard and there are really brutal situations that you have to make decisions in you know as like connected to all this um conversation and that film is incredibly ambiguous you know i don't know how much it tells you what you should be doing it's more like a removed look back on a very difficult situation that it's almost absurd how small it is in the grand scheme of let's say a train ride that you can just describe a very complicated portion in your life to a person on a train and that's what it is now it's not like the 5 years you were within the period it's just you talking on the train and that's mm-hmm. what's very odd about life and also about cinema that you can represent very complicated uh, divisive periods that should take years and years and years and incredible amounts of emotion and effort and finances for you to learn from them you can get that in like an hour you know so one interesting thing is um i'm in a scene study class and in that class you gotta um, make two films about a story in your life that happened to you and it has to be a scene so it can't be a you know like a five scene film it has to be one scene and um you kind of gotta either you gotta carpent carment carpentalize what's the word compartmentalize yeah um a moment in your life or you have to look for those moments and the craziest thing to me is that we're all I think maybe I'm like one of the oldest kids in the class we're all like 21 20 right and you're making a film about a moment in your life and I I feel like just we all don't have um, some people don't have the wisdom of what they're making movies about. It seems like some people are making films about breakups and they're still angry about that breakup. And some people are making mm-hmm. films about their relationship with their parents and they're still angry at their parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Actually, I'm, I'm saying to, to maybe to just bring up because of what you were saying about this, you know, a, a hundred year old man making a story about when he was like maybe 30. Um, I made a movie about um, a breakup scene which uh, happened like two months prior. And then someone else is making a movie about a breakup that was like a month ago. And then you ask them about the movie. Like, oh, yeah, what's the movie about? And they're like pissed at the situation as they're talking to you. And I'm like, I'm wondering like, what if you made this movie in three years? What if you made this movie in five years? What I really would love to see, like that would be a cool film. That would be a great like uh, boyhood, you know, or or, like a movie you make over several years. you making a scene from your life and how you make it when you're uh, a year after and how you'd make it five years after. Yeah, yeah. Because these guys are, like, bitter, man. Some of them are bitter about what happened. And then um, some people are, yeah, I'm just going to make a film about this. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter to me. And I I really like the perspective they're going to bring to it because, like, one thing I realized from mine was um, I made myself in the breakup scene an asshole. I don't know why I did that. And then 
Um, I know some other people, they made themselves into... It, it's interesting how you form yourself. Yeah. I wonder how this guy forms himself. I mean, I, you can't know the guy. But, like, how do you make a movie about a moment from your life? Per- personify yourself. Yeah. And then personify the moment. Mm-hmm. And are you trying to go unbiased? Are you trying to do a heavy POV of your own self? And then it comes into, like, um, if people will believe you. If you make a film about yourself in a situation in life and you make yourself out to be, like, a great hero, no one's going to give a shit. They're going to hate that. But also, if you don't tell them that. Like, the difference is, like, I'm in a class where I know the film. Again, we're in the... We're all in a, in a college where we know the filmmakers of it. If you guys saw these, if the audience uh, saw the film and didn't know the filmmaker, how would they feel about it? Maybe completely different because yeah. we know the background to it. And um, w- one problem I, I'm having is my next film is about um, one of my relationships with my family members. And that situation is not uh, resolved. Mm. But I'm making a film about it because I, I want to. And I don't know, that's one, that's one of the troubles I've been having with that. Um, if I should make it, if I should wait to make it, um, you know, like, will, will I end up just make like being, mm-hmm. the thing is, what do you think about failing? What is a, what is a failure in a film to you? Cause I'm, I'm worried that I will make the film and because of it not being resolved, maybe the story isn't, maybe the story is more real. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more real that it's not resolved yet. Maybe if I, if it was resolved, it would be too much of a, right. a bow. On the yeah, present. I mean, there's certainly, I, I definitely agree with um, how you're describing it, that I, I would say, overall, the, the better decision in general, as far as your, like, life is concerned, um, is is taking some time and, like, having some space to, like, portray it. But there are certainly films that, like, have been made in fury after something <laughs> rough happened. Like, there, you know, there's a film called Possession by Anja's... Zuowski, that's right after he had a horrible divorce, and it's a brutal, furious movie, you know? Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's certainly, like, failure. Um, yeah, it's it's really difficult to assess that, because I, I would say that with, with filmmaking and then with art as well, it should, it should be, to some extent, a therapy, and it should be getting you through... For the, for the filmmaker or for the audience? For the filmmaker themselves. Okay. Uh, when it's based on real life. Yeah. Is this still gonna... Yeah. It's fine. So, yeah, as far as the filmmaker and therapy, I do think that we're starting out as, like, an artist uh, is an emotional and internal process that's made external. So that is a therapeutic pursuit. And that has to do with you having a better sense of how to control these these things that are within yourself. So to succeed at that is to be more critical on yourself. I mean, you said you were portraying yourself as an, as an asshole, and I think that is the better way to look at it. It's like thinking that, um, and this is another way to describe it, that if, if, yeah, it's like putting up the best defense for someone that caused you harm that you possibly can, right? If you're going to make a film about someone like robbing you or something, that you make the best defense possible for them. And you understand that this is, there is a therapeutic beginning to this. And that this is also something that resonates deeper for an audience to see later because they're thinking, well, this character kind of deserved to get robbed. But at the same time, no one really deserves to get like robbed. Like you shouldn't be hoping wrongdoing on anybody, even if they're let's say, immoral or something. But that's what's so interesting about cinema and, and with art. 
is that you can put people in this very odd position of dealing with, like I brought up eccentricities of a blonde-haired girl, mm -hmm. uh, putting people in very difficult, divisive situations in which multiple different results can happen and kind of seeing how it plays out. And again, that's trying to, that's getting closer to wisdom is what I would argue. So yeah, I, I think a success with a film is to feel like you have a better sense of what to do if it happened again, maybe. I mean, that's almost like cliche, but it really is. Like if you go through a bad breakup that the next time won't be that fucking horrible. Like that seems kind of obvious, but okay. so I think that's reasonable as a filmmaker. It's like in documentary, right? I said that once in a, in a class that if you're working with someone in documentary, if you're making a film on someone, I do think the goal should be to help the person that is the subject learn through their life and get better, right? There are filmmakers that have said that too. They work with people to make them better people. And the experience of making a film for all the parties involved at the level of the makers should be a therapy to getting somewhere else. And it's almost like cheap wisdom for someone that watches it. It's pretty earned wisdom for me and excuse me, for me and you, for instance, to to try and depict aspects of our life in the cinema or through any type of art. Um, because that is us working out, like I'm saying, the internal into an external place. And most people just don't have that. Most people kind of are are bottled up emotionally, and they don't really have anywhere to put that. They, they can't really see it in front of them and see, oh, that's what it looks like. You know, like a Picasso blue period is to see his emotion in on the canvas and to think, okay, this is not just this abstract phenomena that is dominating me and killing me. No, I, I can make something out of it, and that is the reward of my anxiety. That's the reward of the division that's splitting my soul. That's the, the division that's keeping me from angling myself in the direction that I think I should be to maintain some kind of sanity in the world. Like you can't just you can't just let it destroy you. And I think that's what artists are very wise about is that the pursuit, I think initially I know when we, we had this conversation kind of with Nabil, he was saying, oh, yeah, art's not about yourself. And I agree that, you you know, you're still giving it to an audience, but the, where it starts is still yourself. And it still starts at these really complicated emotions um, getting rendered into something that's concrete. Um, I wouldn't quite say it's literal. You could say it's tangible. There's a tangible representation of something that is very abstract, you know, because, I mean, animals don't. I mean, even if you say your dog is happy or sad, there's no dog artist or something. Or, I mean, some of the problems human beings have to go through have almost nothing to do with, like, they really have very little to do with actually the actually being near the brink of death or not, right? It's not just like you're in a sword fight in your life. It's that, you know, you have, a, you have like, an uncle asking you for money when you, like, kind of don't want to give them any, but you kind of have some, you know? Or, or a person on the street, like a homeless man, right? It's like a homeless man asking you for money. That's not very interesting as far as a life or death struggle. And that's not very, um, that's not universal until really recently as far as people are concerned. And it's kind of, it's a bit immature to sidestep that and say, oh, well, you know, there are issues today that are kind of just goofy or whatever, or they're, they're weird. And it's also immature to say that like the biggest problem in the world is that you can or can't give money to a homeless man. But it's certainly, the wise approach to look at it, you know? And I think that's what cinema allows you. Um, and art as well, but cinema mostly, to really observe and attempting to give people the... the outlet. Yeah, the outlet, the frame in which they can, like I'm saying, I keep using the term, give words to it. Because it's not words. It's not like me describing 
I learned this from not so giving just, or... So I'm, I'm, I'm drawing more of a, a full um, shape of what we're talking about. So it kind of seems like we kind of do a similar thing. Like, whereas, I mean, I, I told you I'm changing, I'm currently changing as a filmmaker and what I really try to do with my films, but, like, maybe a year ago I made a film that was trying to, like, do, be a lesson for people. Mm. But you're kind of saying the same thing, whereas basically you're doing that only through an observational sense for them rather than a, than a directly here is the right. Mm. So, but kind of film is that, though. You know, film is matter what it's an observation you know um like there is maybe a lesson that a like a director might want you to take maybe maybe you can take it as there will be blood is about you know not being a tyrannical man or something like that and mm -hmm. there there might be more of a clear like maybe the film is actually about um Maybe to somebody it's like about not being religious. Maybe to somebody it's about being religious. Maybe to somebody it's about being a better father. Um, but maybe, I mean, it's interesting how you maybe see that. And I, I'd say that it's like the director telling you this. But then you'd see that and you say, I observed it and you found that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still an observation. Like, There Will Be Blood and the work of Paul Thomas Anderson is still an observation of very complicated lives. So you can pick apart aspects of them, but it's still like a life with a conglomeration yeah. of issues um, and themes and whatnot. So, yeah, I do agree that like to some extent there there is a filmmaker. You, I mean, a filmmaker can walk you through the film and say, "Oh, look, there's this moment, there's that moment, there's this." I moment. hate that. Yeah, and they can give you their opinion on what each scene signifies, but to limit like you know Muhammad Ali's life into. I don't know, like, I don't know. I don't know how you can do that. I don't know yeah. how you can actually, and that's what some of the great, like, There Will Be Blood, why that is such a great film, is that it is an attempt to contain an uncontainable life, and that really manifests through the viewers after it's done, because you're thinking to yourself, what am I even supposed to make of a person like that? Because there's so many contradictory elements to him, because there's contradictory elements in people. Yeah. So you can learn from it, because you can make the conclusions on your own, and that's how you have to live as a human being is you have to make conclusions. You can't just say, oh, no judgment. That's bullshit. You have to judge in order to assess, in order to get better. And that's like yeah. a rough fact because it's very hard to be in the position of saying, oh, yeah, Daniel Plainview is a piece of shit. Because, no, I mean, he's very, very wealthy at the end of the movie. That's also successful. But at the same time, he, like, has a horrible relationship now with his, with his son. And so maybe the lesson is life is going to give you an incredible amount of challenges that are very difficult to approach and solve. But it's not a lesson in the sense that it tells you how to avoid that. It's mm -hmm. more like a warning. It's mm -hmm. more like works of cinema in, in their observation yeah. are, are warnings at the ever-expanding complexity of life, and especially the ever-expanding complexity for the individual. But for a long time, I really thought that we looked at films fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. And the more you're talking about it, the more it actually... It does intersect. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know if you felt the same way, too, about how I see films. I don't know if we ever really mm. talked about, like, themes and, and what a film's purpose is. But. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot of overlap as far as, um, especially in terms of ambition, you know? Like, if it feels like people are going into, and it feels like, since we've met, that you are one of the people that are going into film for 
good reasons, not just like you go, oh, I don't really, I don't really care about. Because I, I meet plenty of people that say, oh, I don't watch movies, and you've never been someone I've met that like said I haven't watched movies. You're more like, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen this? So you're one of the people that I met here that I didn't really know that was asking me about films, and very few people even do that. Even if I'm in a class, even if I'm in a cinema class, people aren't even saying like, oh, have you seen this? Or I'm gonna go see this. Like, and that's that's the ambition that does overlap, even if the form is. Um, Different. Even if our approaches to conveying that type of thing is different, the ideal of it is still there. You know, it's still like in the right direction of wanting to make the best work possible. You know, and the best work possible that people can really respond to, like to the best of their, uh, you know, to the best of their abilities. 